Back in, uh, 19, back in 1952, there was this American swimmer by the name of Florence Chadwick, and she'd become this international celebrity because she just finished swimming across the English Channel. First woman to ever do this. And she did it both ways, swimming from England to France and then swimming from France back to England. So when Florence came back over to America, everybody was excited. This time she's going to take on another challenge. She, this time she was going to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. Now, it was a little bit longer than what she'd done over there in England, but not that much. So everybody was just confident she was going to do well. And yet, this time, Florence failed. After being in the water for 15 hours, Florence began to lose heart. And it wasn't the cold water. It wasn't muscle cramps. It wasn't sharks or a school of jelly, jellyfish. In fact, it wasn't even a case of physical exhaustion. The reason why Florence decided to quit after 15 hours in the water was because of the fog. A massive fog had rolled in. She couldn't see where she was going. She lost sight of the shoreline. I mean, she tried for another hour. She swam for another hour, but the fog just kept getting thicker and thicker. And finally, emotionally, Florence just couldn't take it anymore, and so she decided to quit. When they pulled Florence into the boat, they let her know that she was only one mile from the shore. Another hour, and she would have reached her goal. If only she had realized how close she was. Maybe. Maybe she would have persevered. Listen, there are going to be times in your life and mine when the fog rolls in and we lose sight of what God's doing. It becomes hard to see where is God? How is he at work right now? And in those moments, it becomes very easy to lose heart and want to quit. This morning, the particular kind of fog that I want to talk about is what the Bible refers to as waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. There's two ways you can look at that expression. You can look at that in a positive way. You can see it from God's point of view. We're waiting on the Lord is a good thing. It's what the Bible calls hope. It is this guaranteed expectation that God is getting ready to do something great. And so we want to put ourselves in a position where we're ready to receive that blessing. So picture it this way. This kind of waiting, here's what we're talking about. It's like a, like a runner at the starting line. And waiting for the signal, waiting for the gun to go off so the race can begin. And as he or she stands there at the starting line, their waiting is not a passive thing. It's an active kind of thing. At that moment, as they're there at the starting line, the mind is focused. The body is poised. I mean, both mentally and physically, they're ready to jump out of the gates as soon as that gun goes off. They're anticipating. They're, they're waiting with a sense of anticipation. They're waiting for something good. Their waiting is not a passive thing. It is a very active kind of thing. We see an example of that in the Bible in Luke chapter 2 with Simeon and Anna, the older man and the older woman, who've been waiting for years to see the Messiah. And then finally, one day, Joseph and Mary come to the temple with the baby Jesus. And at last, with their own eyes, Simeon and Anna can see, they can now see how all their hopes and dreams are going to come true. I mean, for years and years and years, they've been expecting God to do something extraordinary. That's why every day they keep coming back to the temple. And now at last they see Jesus. And they can see how their waiting has not been in vain. So from God's point of view, waiting is a good thing. It's something that brings hope, real hope. But there's another way of looking at that expression. You can look at this expression, waiting the Lord, from a merely human point of view. And when you look at it like that, it becomes exasperating. You get angry. You get frustrated. You become very, very impatient. 
It's like that traffic jam you were sitting in the other day. All the cars in the interstate had come to a complete stop, and you had no idea how long you were going to be sitting there waiting for things to start moving again. And as you were sitting there, in that moment, were you happy? Oh, okay, there's nothing I can do about this, so here's a moment for me to just relax for a while. I'll just enjoy the scenery. Look at that beautiful sunrise. Or I can, and now I've got a chance to listen to one of my favorite songs, and I'll munch on this bag of pretzels that I had sitting there in the lunch bag. I'll just chill out for a moment. Is that what you did? If you're like me, you were fretting, you were fuming. I'm going to be late for work. I'm going to miss that appointment. Maybe you were stressed out because you forgot to put gas in the car and the needle's on empty and you have no idea how long this car is going to survive out here in the interstate. The more you waited, the more frustrated you got because in that moment, you found yourself in a mess, a mess that you were not happy about and more than anything else, you want to get out of that mess as quickly as possible. That's the kind of situation this man Jairus is in the man that we're going to read about here in Mark chapter 5. Only the mess that he is in is much more serious than a traffic jam. His little girl is about to die. And Jesus is the only one who can help. And yet not just once, but again and again, Jairus is going to find himself in a place where he has to keep waiting on the Lord before he ever gets the help that he needs. And this waiting for Jairus is anything but easy. Look at this with me. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd was waiting there. A large crowd had gathered around him while he was by the lake. When Luke talks about this very same event, Luke chapter 8, he makes it clear this, this crowd, a huge crowd of people, and they've been standing there for a long time waiting for Jesus to come from the other side of the lake. So there's a lot of people here standing and waiting on Jesus, and yet they're not all waiting in the same way. You know, Albert Einstein was once asked to explain his theory of relativity and do it in a non-scientific way, do it in a way that we can all understand it. So here's how he paraphrased it. He said, think of a man sitting down at a table talking to a pretty girl, and they talk for an hour, and yet that hour seems like just a minute. I mean, the time just flies. But you take that same man and you set him on a hot stove and he only has to sit there for one minute and yet that one minute seems like an hour. The time just goes on forever. In other words, your perception of time changes relative to what you're doing. You know that. When you were a little kid, you remember have, having to ride in the back seat of the car and you'd been in the car for an hour and yet that hour seemed like an eternity. Are we there yet? And yet today as an adult, riding in the car, being in the car for an hour, that's no big deal. Your perception of time changes over the years. So it is here. We've got a huge crowd of people, and they're waiting for Jesus, but they're not all waiting in the same way. Some are waiting with a sense of excitement. Oh, I can't wait to see him again, to hear him teach, to watch him perform another miracle. I mean, it seems like every time Jesus is around, something amazing happens. I can't wait till he arrives. But there's somebody else standing in the crowd today. He's not waiting in the same way. He doesn't feel a sense of excitement. This man, Jairus, he is exasperated. It's nerve-wracking. When is Jesus ever going to get back to this side of the lake? And here's why he feels this way. Look at verse 22. Then one of the synagogue leaders, this is Jairus. He's a synagogue leader, which means in this Jewish, in this Jewish setting, he, he's, uh, he's somebody well-known, somebody highly regarded, Somebody with a lot of clout. He's the man that maintains the facilities, the synagogue building. He's the man that every Sabbath that organizes the worship services when people gather together to worship the Lord. He's the one who no doubt stands up in front of people that day on the Sabbath and opens up the scroll to read the word of God to them. 
a leader. He's a man of power, a man of, a, of authority. No doubt he, on this day he could have just stayed home and sent one of his servants to make the request. Jesus, I've got a problem. Could you stop by the house and visit with me? And everybody would have expected Jesus to respond. Lord, if you're going to help anybody, make sure you help him because he's one of the most important men in our town. But on this day, it's Jairus himself who shows up because he's in desperate straits. Look, then one of the synagogue ruler, or leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He's hurting. He's in trouble. He fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter. Luke will tell us it's his only daughter, his only girl. His little daughter, you get down to the end of this chapter, and we're going to learn she's actually 12 years old, but you've got to understand something. When you're a dad, it doesn't matter if your daughter's 12 or 22 or 42. She's always going to be your little girl. She always has this really special place in your heart. My little daughter is dying, and the word dying literally means sinking fast. It could happen at any moment. The situation is urgent. It's an emergency. The need is critical. Please, Jesus, please come. Put your hands on her so that my little girl can be healed, so my little girl can live. See, when you're a parent, there's nothing that hurts more than to see one of your children suffering. You don't want them to be in pain. You do anything you could to take that pain away. That's Jairus. He's in desperate straits. Jesus, I need your help, and I need it right now. And Jesus understands. He responds immediately because he's full of compassion. Look at verse 24. So Jesus went with him. But there's a huge crowd there that day, remember? And they're walking with Jesus and Jairus. They're on the way to the home of Jairus. And in that crowd is a woman who needs Jesus too. She's had this chronic issue where for the past 12 years she's been bleeding. And because of the bleeding, it's caused all kinds of trouble and pain and misery and suffering. She spent every dime she's had going from one doctor to the next trying to find some kind of, kind of a cure. And nobody, in 12 years, nobody's been able to help her out. And now the money's gone. Everything right now looks hopeless. And then she hears that Jesus is in town. So she decides, hey, I'll, I'll just sneak into the crowd. You know, if I could just touch Jesus, if I just could, could just touch the hem of his garment. I'll touch him in such a way he won't even know I was there. That way he can just keep on going and do whatever he needs to do. But if I could just have this brief touch of this miracle worker, surely I'll get some kind of a blessing. So privately, discreetly, she crawls through the crowd, making sure that nobody else notices. And she reaches out to touch the bottom of, of his robe. And immediately the suffering stops. Immediately she's healed. Well, immediately Jesus knows a miracle's occurred. And he stops because he wants to meet with this woman. He doesn't just want her to receive a gift. He wants her to meet the one who gave her that gift. This woman needs to meet God. She needs to know in a very personal way that God cares about her. So even though he's on his way to this urgent situation, Jesus stops, turns around, find that woman. Don't let her get away. And the search begins. They find the woman. They bring her back. The crowd parts so everybody can see. The woman comes and falls on her knees before Jesus. And Jesus and this woman begin to engage in a lengthy conversation. And that day, the whole community learns what a glorious thing God has done for this woman. I mean, it's an extraordinary moment, unless you're Jairus. If you're Jairus, this is maddening. This is exasperating. Now, for the second time, he is forced to wait upon the Lord. And what makes this second time especially hard is that the waiting makes no sense. 
Lord, I was here first. She cut in line. And Lord, her need is not nearly as great or as desperate as mine. Why do you help her before you help me? You know, picture it like this. If you were in the emergency room in the hospital and Jesus was the doctor on call that day and you brought your little girl in because she's at the point of death and there's Jesus at her bedside examining her when they bring in this other woman. And he leaves your little girl and he goes over to help her out. Yeah, Lord, I understand she's been hurting for the past 12 years, but for the past 12 years, she can wait another 30 minutes. My little girl can't. Why are you helping her before you help me? Would you not sue that doctor for malpractice? God, do you not have your priorities all mixed up? This waiting makes no sense at all. And then it gets worse. Look at verse 35. While Jesus is speaking to this woman that he's healed. Some people come from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and say, your daughter's dead. No need to bother Jesus anymore. Now think about this. At this point, what good has it done for Jairus to wait upon the Lord? From his point of view right now, waiting on Jesus has brought him nothing but pain and misery. Waiting on Jesus has brought him nothing but pain and disappointment. But the story's not over yet. Did you see that story in the news about Marianne Franco back in 1995, Okeechobee, Florida? She was in a car accident. And as a result of that accident, she lost her sight, spent the next 20 years living in darkness. And then August 2015, things got even worse. She took a fall, a hard fall, because she couldn't see, took a hard fall and injured her neck. And as a result of that injury, she spent the next 10 months living in excruciating pain. I mean, being blind is bad enough, but now to have this chronic pain on top of that? Marianne Franco is a believer. And no doubt during this time, she's thinking to herself, God, where are you? Why are you allowing all these bad things to happen to me? Marianne went to see the doctor and asked the doctor, is there anything at all you can do to alleviate the pain, the pain she was feeling, not just in the neck, but her arms and her back as well. So finally, the doctor agreed to perform a surgery on her spine. He performed the surgery. Mary's brought out of the recovery room, and the remarkable thing, suddenly she could see again. <laughs> somehow, nobody could figure this out, somehow that surgery in the spine enabled her to recover her sight. And the really remarkable thing was this. Back there in 1995, before she had that car accident, before she lost her sight, Mary Ann Franco was colorblind. She wasn't colorblind anymore. She could now see every color in the spectrum. They talked to the neurosurgeon. They asked him to explain this, and he said, I can't. Who knew what God, who could understand what God was up to using this one setback and injury with the next so he could help solve the other setback, give this woman the ability to see again? That's what's happening right now with Jairus. He thinks the story's over, but it isn't. God's still at work. God hasn't finished yet. And watch what he does, verse 36. Overhearing the friends of Jairus and what they said, Jesus told him, now, you just picture the scene. Here's Jairus looking at his friend, head down, gets the bad news. And Jesus comes and grabs him by the shoulders and just looks at him. Jairus, look at me. Look at me. Don't despair. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Jairus, just believe. And that expression, just believe, literally means keep on believing. Well, how do you do that? 
how do you keep on believing when you find yourself in a hopeless situation? You see, you and I, we don't feel the tension that's in verse 36 because we already know how things are going to turn out. We can quickly skip down to verses 41, 42 and see how Jesus is going to raise his daughter back to life again. There's going to be a resurrection. We already know everything's going to be okay. But at this point in time, Jairus doesn't know that. He's in a fog. He has no clue what the future holds for him. He has no idea if he's close to anything good. Right now, everything looks hopeless. And in that situation, how do you keep on believing? Well, the answer is found in what Jairus does, verse 37 to the end of the chapter. Do you notice how Jairus does not go home alone? Jairus brings Jesus with him. Jairus brings Jesus to that hopeless situation. Jairus allows Jesus to walk with him in the midst of the fog. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Have you ever noticed when you read the book of Psalms? Here we have this wonderful book right in the very middle of our Bible. 150 Psalms, 150 prayers, a prayer for every occasion of life. But have you ever noticed that in most of those Psalms, there's kind of a pattern that about halfway through the psalm, sometimes you have to go two-thirds of the way down the psalm before this happens. But about halfway down the psalm, a shift takes place. You know, the first part of the psalm, most of the time, is King David. And here's King David. He's talking to God, and he's telling him about a problem I got. Here's the kind of trouble I'm in, Lord. And he describes that trouble in great detail. My enemies are chasing me. My life is in danger. The guilt of my sin is too heavy for me to bear. And yet, suddenly, in the middle of the psalm, he makes a shift. And he stops talking to God about his problem, and now he begins to talk to the problem about his God. But God can defeat my enemies, and God can rescue me from that danger, and God can take away the guilt of my sin. First part of the prayer, here's David casting all his anxieties upon the Lord. God, here's why I'm worried. Here's why I'm troubled. Here's why I'm so upset. And then halfway through, he shifts. And he begins to seriously reflect upon God and who he is, to carefully consider what he's like and what he's able to do and how he's able to handle every one of those anxieties. The first part of the prayer, he's talking to God about the problem. Second part of the prayer, he's talking to the problem about God. Oh, God, I just lost my job. Wow, I didn't see that coming. I wasn't expecting that at all. This has really thrown me for a loop. God... I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I've been here for 20 years. What am I going to do now? And Lord, as I look at the future, I don't see how I'm going to be able to provide for my family. But God, I've read Exodus chapter 16. I saw how you brought the manna down from heaven and fed your people while they were out there in the desert. And God, I read John chapter 6. I saw how you took that little boy's lunch and you multiplied it so everybody in that crowd had more than enough to eat that day. God, I know you. I know what you're like. I know what you're able to do. Would you please find a way to help me? Would you please find a way to take care of my family? Or God, there's no peace in my home right now. I'm constantly fighting with my wife. My kids are all the time yelling at each other. It's just an ongoing war and conflict in the worst possible way. I want all of this to stop, but I don't know how. But you do. God, I, I read Mark chapter 4. I saw that day when there was this huge storm raging around you and your disciples, but I saw how you stood up in that boat and you commanded that storm to stop. God, would you do that for us? Would you calm the storm in our house? 
You see, that's what's happening here with Jairus. Jairus does not come home alone. He brings Jesus with him. And it's right there that we learn something really important about this expression, waiting on the Lord. It's never a passive thing. It's always an active thing. It means bringing God into the picture. You never just look at the trouble by itself. You put God in that picture too. So Jesus comes to the home of Jairus. And he walks into that room where his little girl is lying on the bed, lying dead on the bed. And look at what Jesus does. Verse 41. Jesus took her by the hand and he spoke to her. Talitha kum. It's Aramaic. Here's what it means, little girl. It's one way of translating this. Little girl, Talitha, little girl. It's a really tender, if you were speaking Aramaic, it's a really tender expression. It has a lot of emotion, a lot of affection. It's kind of like saying, honey. But that word Talitha could also be the name of the girl. Talitha, get up. And immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. Now, here's what's really interesting. These words that Jesus speaks, they were probably the same words this little girl had heard for the past 12 years. Every morning, when her dad or her mom would come into the room, sit down on the edge of her bed, tap her on the shoulder, or take hold of her hand, say, Talitha, you slept long enough. Time to get out of bed. It's a new day. Why don't you get up and enjoy the day? But now, here is Jesus taking those very simple words, and he gives them a whole new significance. Because you see, these are the very same words that you're going to hear one day. And these are the very same words that I'm going to hear one day, the day when we die. Jesus has already made it clear, verse 39, that if you're a Christian, when you die, it's like going to sleep. It's nothing to fear. It's a temporary thing. When you die, you just simply go to sleep. You go to sleep to life in this world, and immediately after you die, you wake up. And when you wake up, you find yourself in a brand new place. The night is over. The darkness is gone. The light has appeared again. And as you open your eyes, there's Jesus. He's looking right at you. And he's got a hold of your hand. And he says, David, <laughs> time to get up. I've got a whole new life in store for you. Back in 1952, when Florence Chadwick quit, quit that race, she regretted it. I mean, she really regretted it. So two months later, she decided to try again. Two months later, she went back out to Catalina Island for a second attempt. And guess what happened? The fog rolled in. Oh, man, you've got to be kidding me. And this time, the fog was heavier than ever. But this time, Florence finished the swim. Why? She couldn't see where she was going. But in her mind, she had a picture of what that shoreline was like. And with that picture in mind, she kept her perspective, and she refused to give up. I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us a picture. Here is a preview of what's waiting for you and me. What Jesus did for that little girl is exactly what he's going to do for us. In other words, here is Jesus teaching us that our life in this world really matters. And the reason why it really matters is not because this is the only life we've got. It isn't. No, the reason why it matters is what we have right now is just a beginning. A beginning of a life that's going to carry on for all eternity and carry on one day in a new heavens and a new earth. So no matter what kind of trouble we're in right now, it's temporary. Because of Jesus, we know the best is yet to come. You see, waiting on the Lord, it's a good thing. Why? Because while we wait, we don't wait alone. We wait with him. He walks with us in that period of waiting. And what are we waiting for? 
We're waiting for the great things that God has in store for us. Let's pray. God, restore our hope. Help us. Help us to see, I mean really see, what you have in mind for us. God, help us to see that promise that you made that one day all things will work together for good. No matter what's going on right now, you have promised, you have guaranteed that one day all things will work together for good. God, help us to see that and believe that. But God, today, in the midst of the fog, whatever kind of trouble we're in right now, God, would you do for us what you did for this little girl? Would you right now just take hold of our hand? God, in some special way today, confirm for every one of us here that we're not alone. You are with us. And no matter what kind of trouble we're in, you're going to find a way to see it, see us through. Help us to see that, know that, believe that. God, today, help us to see Jesus and help us to see what he can do for us. And I pray for that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.